Everything my dad preached and portrayed himself to be was actually who he was at home. So there'd be times, you know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night, I'd hear my mom or my dad praying in the living room, you know, be three, four in the morning. And I hear them crying out to God and, you know, agonizing before God. And that would really do a number to me. You know, I, I'd be living in sin, rebellious, but then I would hear them crying out to God, praying about the ministry, praying for us, praying for me. And uh, yeah, that definitely put things in my heart that set me up to a place where I came to a point of uh, surrendering to God. It kind of prepared my heart for that moment. And no doubt, yeah, that that definitely caused me wanting to come to Christ because of their exampleship, because they were the real deal. They were the real thing. Welcome to the free sermon podcast of the Potter's House Church in Virginia Beach, affiliated with Christian Fellowship Ministries. Our vision is winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. It's Tuesday, where you're going to hear a powerful testimony of God's grace revealed in human lives. Each Tuesday, you'll hear Pastor Adam interviewing pastors from around the world to share the mighty miracles that God has done in their lives to give you hope for yours. We share the stories of the men behind the messages you hear every other day on this podcast. Keep in mind that the free version only includes a portion of the whole testimony interview. To listen to the full version, Use the links in the show notes to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or Supercast.tech. Every dollar goes to supporting world evangelism. Enjoy today's Testimony Tuesday. All right, we are back for Testimony Tuesday. It's Pastor Adam Dragoon with you from Virginia Beach. Uh, once again, we have an uh, amazing guest with us. We're so grateful to have the opportunity. All the way from Guam in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, uh, we have Pastor Jesse Cluck. Uh, so glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you. My privilege to be here. Thank you for taking the time. It's a, a great privilege, and we have to thank Pastor Jeremiah Wacker once again uh, for setting this up. Yes. So shout out to him once again. We're grateful for that, and and also, uh, you know, uh, you have a lot of things to do, so we're, we want to be uh, respectful of your time. Uh, and so, uh, obviously, we can't talk about you, Pastor Jesse, without talking about your dad, uh, the great Glenn Cluck, <laughs> and uh, the legacy that he's left on our on our fellowship. So we're really excited to be able to hear from you and hopefully some behind the scenes stories of uh, of what God has been do- doing in your life yes. and in your family. But uh, before we get to all that, I wonder if you could give us the conference style report of, uh, you know, the three to five minutes of what God is doing where you are. Yeah, I would just say recently um, God has been helping us in the sense after the passing of my father, uh, the church has been powering along. Uh, there's always been that that question how the church would do in such a circumstance with him passing away like he did. But we're very encouraged that God is helping us. Uh, we've been able to launch around 14 to 15 churches in the last two years. Uh, and then also right now we're working on a building project to expand the building to seat around 1,400 people. So we're looking forward to that. That should be open uh, probably next month. The wall is going to come down. The mezzanine is going to be put in place. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, God's just been helping us. We have churches all the way from India to Oklahoma, uh, throughout the islands of the sea, Micronesia, uh, the Marshall Islands. We have uh, two churches there, a church in Palau, and then, of course, all the Micronesian states, uh, Yap, Kosrai, uh, Chuk, Panape, and then we have churches in, in the Saipan region, uh, church in Japan, you know, making impact in the Philippines and Vietnam, 
So we're, we're thankful for what God is doing from a little tiny speck in the island of the sea that most people don't even know where Guam's at. And when you tell them, I live in Guam, uh, they have no clue unless they've been in the military. So we're very thankful that God is moving this, moving upon this little, you know, speck in the middle of the sea. So we're thankful for that. Praise God. That is so encouraging. And I got to tell you, there was a Prescott conference that I went to as a new convert, well, a fairly new convert. And I remember watching a conference video and it, it included a report from the island of Chuuk. And <laughs> I was embarrassed that I had never uh, even considered that that was a name of a place. <laughs> and so I was so blown away that, yes. oh, man, we have a fellowship spread to a place that I had never heard of, couldn't locate on the map, even if you paid me $100. So um, <laughs> even though we haven't heard of a lot of these places, at least at least of those of us here in the States, um, man, God really doing a great work through the Guam Fellowship and uh, and through the you know the ministry of your dad and now you, that's a it's a great encouragement, man. And so we're grateful for all that God is doing. Uh, yes, I'm sure it's uh, it's uh, even even more fulfilling for you to see you know the day to day, not just the um, you know the overall. 14 churches launching uh, in two years. That's an incredible feat. But but for you to kind of get the the bird's eye view as as the pastor and overseer of that, and that's uh, that's got to be an incredible privilege for you. Yes, we're so thankful for what God is doing that everything's just keeping uh, going. You know, in the right direction. My pa- my father, you know, he was my pastor for many years. So uh, you know, he set the the course for us. He put the foundations, rebuilt the foundations here in Guam. So we're so thankful. Uh, that he did that, and we're just keeping with the pattern, you know, the pattern of our fathers. And I'm reminded every day, you know, why I'm here, what I'm doing because of what he did, and the example that he said. So we're very grateful. Praise God. Well, I would love to hear some more about uh, your family life and how you grew up and being being the son of the great Glenn Cluck. And uh, what, what, what was it like for you growing up and in your family? Yeah, it was... Uh, you know, I'd say not a typical childhood. We were always moving. I think we moved somewhere around, I believe, 25 to 28 times in my oh, life. Oh, man. So there was never like uh, really a place called home for us. You know, my mom's from Prescott. Uh, she's a native Yavapai. So we've always called Prescott our home, but we were always on the road doing something for God, uh, hopping around, you know, from state to state, city to city. We're in the Philippines for a while, in Macau, China for a while, Hong Kong, Jakarta, Indonesia for a while, St. Louis, Missouri for a while, the reservation, Navajo Nation for a little while. So we were always moving around. So it wasn't a typical (laughs) childhood, I would say. But, you know, looking back now in hindsight, I see what God was doing, uh, moving through my dad and using them in those specific times in our life. Uh, So, you know, it was a very unique what he did. He could be a pastor and evangelist. He could, he could, you know, shift from one to the other. Uh, very needed ministry, what he had of restoring churches. He, he restored many churches in a row. You know, he restored the Ogden Church, uh, the Guam Church, and then the, uh, the Philippines, the National Church there. He was able to restore that in a short amount of time. So, you know, just see, looking back now, I realized each place was strategic. You know, when you're, you're living that lifestyle, it's not very fun. You know, you're moving in the middle of the school year going to a new school. You're the new kid over and over again. So that was a little hard, but, you know, I'm thankful for the life my parents lived just to see their sacrifice, that they're willing to do anything and go anywhere. Uh, at a short notice, you know, Pastor Mitchell would call my dad many times, you know, ask him if you could, you know, pray about this. Would you be willing to do this? And, you know, probably 98% of the time my dad would say yes. He would respond to that. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that to see uh, what God had done in our family. But as far as me, my testimony 
I would say I, I fought it for many years. You know, I didn't, I didn't feel like I was called to preach, you know, as more of an introverted person, you know, the, the total opposite of what people would see my dad as, you know, very fun loving, uh, you know, he, he always was a master of the one liner. So when people look at me, they would ask me, you're going to be like your dad. You think you're going to pastor one day, you know, that would actually push me away from, uh, you know, any type of ministry that I was, would ever want for myself. You know, it wasn't even in my mind. My mind was to, uh, to work a job, make money, just live a low key life, you know, live the American dream. Uh, but, uh, as far as the call of God upon my life, I never really gave it any thought until I became, uh, you know, about 15 or 16 years of age where God really began to move upon my heart. Uh, are you, uh, you have other br brothers and sisters? Yes, I have one sister. She's about five years older than me. She's she's pastoring right now. She's a pastor's wife in uh, in Oklahoma right now. They're pioneering. Oh, praise God! So, um, yes. yeah, I guess uh, it, it it's interesting to me to have you, you know your dad was so just larger than life, and you know wherever he went, wherever he preached, just ministered and touched so many hearts, and. Um, uh, uh, you know, you would think that to to have that in your life is always a great thing. And I, I'm not trying to diminish anything. But for you, I'm just thinking like living in the shadow of that had to be a lot of pressure. Yeah, a lot of pressure because they expect you to be like him or to, you know, maybe be fun loving or outgoing. But my my personality is very different. So uh, that was something I had to deal with, no doubt. But the calling, especially the calling, they just suspect that you're going to enter the ministry like your dad. So sometimes they would come to me and they would question me, you know, are you going to be like your dad? Are you going to preach or uh, do you want a ministry like him? So that would kind of turn me off. But of course, I know I was just a typical church kid. You know how that can be. Pastor's kids are some of the worst around <laughs> until I had my own conversion experience with God around the age of 16. Yeah. Um, did, did you give your parents a hard time? Uh, you know, I, I had enough respect to know not to uh, fool around in church. You know, I would go. I, I understood this was of God, but it wasn't for me. And I know there's some church kids, they, they, they approach it in different ways. Sometimes they approach it in the sense that they're disrespectful. Uh, they disrespect their parents. They disrespect what's going on. But as for me, you know, I had enough sense, uh, you know, enough in my mind at the moment that, you know, this is of God. Uh, I, I respect it. You know, I, it may not be for me, but I'm going to stand when they stand, when they worship God. I may not enter in, but I'm going to bow my head, close my eyes. I'm going to be respectful of what's going on. Uh, so that was kind of the approach that I took with church. Did you um, did you notice one thing that I've heard from a lot of pastors' kids who end up following into the footsteps of their parents is that they 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 say almost the same thing to me. And you you tell me if this is true or not. Um, which is that one of the things that dr draws you once you begin um, uh, sensing the call of God on your life, that one of the things that draws you into that was the example, obviously, of your parents, that not just the preaching ministry and the public ministry, but the fact that what was on the stage held, held true in the sacred place of your home. Did you did you have that experience also? Yes, absolutely. That would be probably the main reason why I came to God, because everything my dad preached and portrayed himself to be was actually who he was at home. So there'd be times, you know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night, I'd hear my mom or my dad praying in the living room, you know, be three, four in the morning. And I hear them crying out to God and, you know, agonizing before God. And that would really do a number to me. You know, I, I'd be living in sin, rebellious, but then I would hear them crying out to God, praying about the ministry, praying for us, praying for me. And uh, 
yeah, that definitely put things in my heart that set me up to a place where I came to a point of uh, surrendering to God. It kind of prepared my heart for that moment. And no doubt, yeah, that, that definitely caused me wanting to come to Christ because of their exampleship, because they were the real deal. They were the real thing. Yeah. Do, uh, so he was stomping on devils in your living room too then? Yeah, that's right. He, he was still the same. You know, he was always, my dad was always somewhat of a jokester. You know, he, he always lighthearted about everything. Very loving person. Very kind. I thank God he was about discipline, but he was also about love. And I know sometimes men can err on one side where they're all disciplined, but there's no love uh, involved in raising their children. So I'm very grateful for my dad that me and my sister were in the ministry. Uh, we're serving God because he was a man of discipline, a man of standard, but also he was a man of uh, of grace and love for us. Man, you can't ask for more than that. Um, yes. You know, what you experienced growing up, and, and there's, I'm sure there's a lot of church kids that may hear this and think that they've got it rough and they, you know, that they're they're suffering to have to live through that. But uh, I tell you, there, there's hardly a better way to grow up. Yes. Um, Very thankful for that. Amen. Well, I, I wanted to ask, what, what were the circumstances that led up to your salvation? Uh, it was more where I knew my dad was praying for me. I knew he would pray for my salvation. He would never, uh, you know, put any pressure on me in the sense that, you know, you're going to be a minister or a preacher and this is what I expect of you. He never did that. And I'm thankful for that. But I knew he was praying because I would go to church during that you know, moment of my life, about 15, 16, and I would feel the presence of God in the service. And a lot of times it would go home with me. And I still remember waking up sometimes in the middle of the night and feeling God's presence in my room. And God would be convicting me, convicting me. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to let you go unless you surrender. So it was, it was moments like that. God began to work on me. It was, you know, it was a progression. And I can, I can say, you know, it's not, I don't know the exact time or the, the day I got saved. It was more like a season in my life where I surrendered because the seeds are already there. For like most church kids, they know what I'm talking about. It's never like a defining moment, like a, a total convert or a total sinner that comes to Christ. But it was more a season in my life where I, I, you know, surrender to God, to God, you know, can have it all. You, you could take my life, do whatever you want with it. And that was a, a moment, I would say, probably the summer of 2001, somewhere around there, the fall time, uh, that I made a decision to God, I'm all in, I surrender. Whatever you want to do with my life, you can use it for your glory. Uh, I don't have much to offer, but whatever you can do with my life, it's yours, you can take it. And that moment when I made a decision to surrender, everything began to change for me. You know, I begin to have a, an appetite for the things of God. It's like a, a light went on in me, like things begin to make some impact in my life before just kind of bounce off, you know, one ear out the other, as we say, but things begin to really change in my life that I, I begin to heed what God was saying through the sermon, uh, through my father, which is unique as it is. He was my pastor, uh, to allow him to speak into my life, knowing that he's my dad, but yet he's my pastor, which was very unique. And, uh, I would say around that age 16, uh, that God began to really change my heart, begin to do a work in my life, but it was more, more surrender, uh, surrendering to God, that God, you can have it all. Uh, I don't have much to offer, you know, but every aspiration, every hope, dream I have, I, I give it to you and you can do whatever you want in my life. Did, uh, where, where were you located geographically? Uh, at that time we were in Utah, Ogden, Utah. My dad had taken the church around 2000, uh, to restore it. They were going through a difficult time. The church was whittled down to about maybe 65 people Sunday morning when he took it. And then Wednesday was about 30 people. 
So we were there for almost four years. He restored the church. And by the time we left that church, went to, uh, came to Guam, rather, um, there was about 220 people. Wow. So, um, so you got saved in the middle of that, uh, restoring period there in Utah. And then, and then, uh, and then you get the call, uh, your, your dad gets the call to go to Guam. Had you been there before? Actually, I was born in Guam. When my dad pioneered the church in the eighties, mid eighties, I was born during that time. He was here for about seven months when he pioneered the church. He got it off support about 70 people in about seven months. And then we went to the Philippines. So during that, that time span, I, I, I was born here. So we came back, came full circle when I was about 18. So the situation was I, you know, I met my wife in the Ogden church. So I know there's always a girl involved. <laughs> so, so I met her uh, during that time. We were young, you know, we know we couldn't do much, but we were, we liked each other. And I knew I was going to eventually marry her. I was going to an electrical uh, technology type college, you know, to get, uh, to become a journeyman, to get the certification, to become an electrician. So that was my plan. I had some plans in place. I can still remember, you know, we had been talking for about a year or so. Uh, and then Pastor Campbell came during that time when Pastor Mitchell had called my dad about coming to Guam to pray about it, to get back to him. So Pastor Campbell was here. He's been always influential in our lives, you know, very close to our family, uh, close to us personally. And he, he was looking at us, you know, over, uh, I think it was uh, either lunch or dinner over the table and he, he saw the situation that I was interested in this girl in Ogden. My plan was maybe to stay, stay behind. My parents would go to Guam. Then he looked at me and said, why don't you marry her? Just go. And then I looked at my dad. I said, can, can, can I do that? Is that, <laughs> is that something I could do? And he, he said, I have no problem with that. Uh, you had to talk uh, to her mom and just kind of let her know what's going on. I have no problem with that. I mean, there's no uh, I know it's a unique, unique thing. I don't recommend <laughs> this scenario to everybody, but you know, I just, I said, I, you know, I feel God. I feel like this is what God wants me to do. So I, I talked to her, you know, her mother, my, my, my wife now, but her mother, about possibly wanting to pop the question, maybe you know, uh, get engaged and to get married quickly. So we only had a month to plan it. So everything worked out where I talked to her mother. She was all for it. They had, you know, they happened to be converts on my dad, which, which helps a lot. <laughs> yeah. Her and her you got mom the inside track. gotten saved. Yes. They got saved in my dad. So they knew, you know, we're in the will of God doing God's will. And, uh, so I talked to the mo- her mother and her mother, you know, released her said, yeah, that's fine. Uh, she's the only daughter, only child. Uh, you know, so coming from a Hispanic culture, you know how that is very close knit families. Uh, but she released her. We got married. Uh, we had a month of planning, got married. Then two weeks later, we came to Guam. I was 18. She was 17. Wow. And then we entered destiny. We entered destiny, not knowing what was to come. Adam Porter was here before us. He had a paid pos- position on staff as a youth pastor. So when we came here, I just kind of fell into that role, uh, stepped into that. And then after a year, uh, we were launched out to pastor our first church in the Southern part of Guam. I was Man, 19. She was 18. That is amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of all the 28, 29 year olds that are saying I'm, I'm still too young to go out. (laughs) So, wow. What a, what an act of faith. So that's, that's really unique. I don't think I've ever heard a story like that, that, uh, you, you, uh, you basically, your parents adopted her. (laughs) Yes. And, uh, and so let's go. So how, how long, how long were you there before you actually got sent out? Just like a year. Yeah. I was there for a year. I was there for a year and I kept pestering my dad, you know, things really accelerated my life. And I always felt in my life that God always kind of prompted me to step out. He, he, you know, I'm not, I wasn't the type that I had my notebook and I was always 
uh, writing notes down. And so, you know, uh, you know, like very active in, in sense, in the sense of wanting to preach, you know, like I wasn't that type. It was more like God was kind of probing my heart and then kind of pushing me into it. So that's how I feel I got into the ministry. I came here. It was like, you know, these guys that were part of the youth group, they had more experience than I did as the youth pastor. They had been preaching in the Bible clubs. They had been street preaching. So I'm kind of a newbie. You know, I'm still kind of what of a new convert kind of. I know I saved, but I was working at my sanctification at the time. And I, I stepped into the role and I just, you know, picked it up and began to lead the youth here. And, uh, you know, the circumstances surrounding how the church was before we got here, many of the young people weren't, weren't allowed to get married young. Uh, you know, it wasn't something that we were pushing or promoting. It was simply this, just the exampleship that we and my wife got married. And uh, the former pastor was kind of somewhat against that. So when we came, I think my dad married around 10 couples the first year that we were in Guam. That's a great thing. Yeah. And, uh, yes. y- you know, I-, I can speak also as somebody who uh, got married at 19 years old. And, you know, I can be grateful for that, that you yes. are never more flexible uh, than at that time. And you can grow together. And, yeah, you don't have everything figured out. And, you know, we're very raw. And, you know, we were very uh at least I was very uncivilized and, you know, not ready for all this, and, <laughs> yeah, but unrefined, thing, exactly. And, uh, but, but you can be refined together, you know, and down the road, yes. it has dividends, uh, that, that young people don't, don't realize these days. I thank you God get, for starting young. Why is that? Uh, because I believe a lot of times if we tend to put postpone things and put things off, we, we bring more things into the marriage and it becomes harder. I mean, we live in a society where everything is against marriage as, as it is already. So when you're young, you're more able to change and to adapt to each other. Like Pastor Mitchell says, two selfish people coming together, one household. So I'm very thankful that we started young. You know, we obeyed. Uh, we didn't have much things that we brought in to our marriage and we were able to, to work it through. You know, you still have to work it through regardless of how young you are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, can you uh, can you kind of share what uh, what's your view of how uh, the culture there in Guam is uh, different or unique compared to what it is here in the States? Uh, I would say the culture is pretty much on par now. When we first got here, I'd say the youth were probably about a decade behind what was happening in the in the States. You know, we we've been here for 20 years now. This This will be our 20th year that we've, we've been here in Guam, based out of Guam or, you know, pastoring on Guam. Uh, so I'd say the, when we first got here, it was very different. You know, they were kind of, and of course the internet has a lot to do with that, connecting with the larger world that's out there. So I would say, yeah, more heartfelt people, you know, not as uh, cynical. I find, you know, the Western world's a little more cynical. So here in the islands, they're very friendly, welcoming, sincere from the heart. So I'd say now at this point, they're pretty much on par What's what, what's happening in the, in the states? But I think what gives us a little uh, bit of a, a break here is that uh, we have Bible clubs in the high school. You know, they're a little more open to religion because it's a Catholic island, so there's still a reverence of men of God, reverence for the church, reverence for spiritual things. So I think that helps us a little bit uh, in the sense that we're allowed to go into schools and do Bible clubs, preach uh, near the high schools. You know, uh, reach out to the youth in many different ways that we have with our. Our youth outreaches, you know, they go into the malls. There's a lot of freedom here still uh, that we can still, you know, make somewhat of an impact among the youth. Yeah, that's great. Do, do you find uh, that it's, um, um, well, I guess I don't know. What, what's the population there? 
The population right now is about 177,000. Okay. Yeah. That's what I'm thought. Yeah. So it's very, very small for, for a whole yes. nation. Uh, yes. Obviously not a large landmass either, but uh, no. do you find that you still have kind of a, a small town feeling? Yes. Yes. It's very small. I mean, we're, we're made up of villages. So it's, there's a little bit of uh, area spread from one village to another. So right where we're at uh, now, the church in Jigo uh, is one of the bigger villages next to Dededo. So with those two villages together, we have about 60, I say 60,000 people. Uh, and then everything else is spread throughout the island. Okay. And beside your church, how many churches are there in Guam? Right now, there is five other churches. So the first church that I started in Agate, in the very southern part is there. And then we have a church in Jonia, middle area, and another church in MTM, and middle area, and the one in Timuni, and then we have one in Manilao. Wow, that is amazing. So, yes. yeah, I, you know, we have cities of 500,000 that uh, have one or two churches, and uh, <laughs> we can't, can't go there. There's not enough room, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Um, so you you went out to pioneer very young and what was that experience like for you yeah it was great i mean i i really went to an area where there was a lot of uh, local people the culture more people the indigenous people so you know i was raised with my mom's family i'm raised with the native american side so i very much know their culture just kind of tribal cultures uh in in, in the whole you know i kind of know how they are uh in the sense because i know you know, being around my family, how they react to things, their demeanor, uh, sometimes their personality. So it was very insightful. You know, it's a very strong uh, stronghold area of Chamorro people. So, you know, going there young, it was totally against the grain of the culture because they look down on young people uh, that you're not really a man unless, you, you know, you're like 30 or 40 years old. Uh, they still call you boy. You know, that's kind of like a term they have here. You're just a boy. Uh, of course, it's a term of endearment, but it can be also derogatory. Like you're never going to rise above a certain level because you're simply just a boy. So I really had to oppose that culture, that mindset. And then, of course, of the uh, Catholicism in that area, very strong, the stubbornness. But then looking back now, I realized that God was preparing me for India. Uh, I, I was in Agate for about a year and a half. I came back, assisted my dad for about two years in the main church. And then we went to Bangalore for four and a half years. So God was kind of preparing me for that stubbornness, that idolatry. Uh, that that atmosphere that's at work among Catholics, but also among Hindus. So God was preparing us for India, no doubt. Did you you mentioned that you're more of a introverted type of personality? Um, how did you handle that? Uh, this is actually something very surprising to a lot of people that that they don't realize that they they assume that every pastor is Mister Extrovert. Um, and that in, introverts cannot thrive in that, but that's not true. Uh, it's it's just a no. different skill set, and uh, I'm, I'm yes. just w wondering how you how you navigated that. Yeah, I, I would. I probably wouldn't label myself that anymore. I think I came out of it. I think you can change. I mean, I was very introverted. I didn't like people. I actually hated people. <laughs> so well, that's funny a problem. How how God has a sense of humor. He uses the people uh, that have to rely on Him so much. So I really had to rely on the Holy Spirit to help me with my words. Uh, with what uh, I would say and how I would react with people. So over time, you know, God began to direct me on how to come out of that, how to come out of the shell. You know, when you're a pastor, you, you're forced to speak. You're forced to talk to people, uh, to counsel, to direct, to preach uh, to the audience. So, you know, over time, God began to bring me out of that uh, just to give me wisdom on how to interact with people, how to communicate the words to speak to people, what to say to them. So I really needed guidance and help. Uh, you know, introverted people, they can use that strength in the sense that they think things through. A lot of times it may not be openly 
uh, displayed, you know, that they're portraying something outwardly, but a lot of times they could be inwardly thinking before they speak and uh, ordering things in the proper way that they they need to conduct themselves. So it's not a, a bad thing, not a you know a weakness, so to say, so to speak. But I would I would say that God brought me out of that and helped me uh, to come overcome certain things in my life to help me to get to the point where I can speak to people, disciple men, work with people. So I'm thankful that you know God has directed me, give me wisdom. Of course, I need the Holy Spirit every day. That's why I'm so dependent upon the Holy Spirit, because I know who I am apart from the Holy Spirit, and I need him desperately in my life. Yeah, that's right. I um, uh, Well, I, I would love to hear your, um, your decision to uh, go to India. How did that come about? Well, I, I just saw that my uh, dad, he always had a burden for Filipinos, Native Americans. So he always had uh, a heart for a certain people group. His heart was always for Native Americans. He was raised in Oklahoma. He's from Oklahoma. So there's a lot of tribes there. He was raised with different tribes in his city. So he always had a burden for Native Americans and then for Filipinos as well. He had made such a great impact on the nation of the Philippines that's even being felt to this day. So I saw that and I always prayed, God, give me a burden for people. I want, I want to have a heart for a nation, like how you use my dad for the Philippines. I want you to use me for a nation. So I began to pray in that line, in that way, and then God began to move upon my heart about 2007. It was around April or May of 2007 that God began to kind of deal with me about India. Like everything I read was India. Every article, every magazine was about the nation of India, how young they are. And then July 2007, the Heinbergs were sent to India. So that really stirred me. Like if God can use a younger couple like them and Pastor Mitchell's for that, then there's hope for me. Maybe I can go. Because I think at the time in our fellowship, Pastor Mitchell was only sending out seasoned, seasoned veterans that had kind of done something already. But I think in that conference, there were not many people responding in, in the sense of older men. So I think he made a decision that he was going to use anybody, even a young person, a young couple to to respond to God's call. So the Heinbergs went that summer. And then that really kind of set me off like, you know, I'm, I want to go now. I have to go. So I kept kind of dropping things in, into my dad, you know, or into his hearing, you know, get dad, you know, I feel called to India. And he'd always say, you know, I don't feel that. <laughs> he would say, I don't feel that from my side. You know, what about my grandkids? You know, what about uh, my grandson at the time was only the first one. So he was kind of happy where I was at. But I felt like, you know, I have to do more. I have to go. I need to get some experience. Uh, and then uh, it was January 2008. I was at a conference in Prescott that God really ministered to me through Pastor Mitchell's sermon on Monday night. I can't remember the whole message, what it was about, but I felt like I have to do this. I have to go this conference. I have to respond. So I went to my dad Tuesday morning. We met outside. He already knew. Before I got to me, God spoke to him already. So I could see the look on his face. It was kind of uh, kind of brokenness, a little bit of sadness, but excitement as well. Like he knew I would have to leave. And then he said, well, let's talk to Pastor Mitchell. So we went to the trailer. At the time, it was the trailer still. Talked to him and he was totally for it. Like, okay, if God's telling you to go there, then we're for that. We'll partner with Guam and we'll send you to Bangalore. So we we were sent from that conference 2008. I was 22. My wife was 21. We went to India for the first time. You know, the, the Rubianas were already there. We, we built friendship with them. They, they helped us a lot when we first got there into the nation. And then, of course, the Heinbergs were already there. And then also the same conference, the Labatos were sent out. They went to Mysore which is outside of Bangalore, but eventually they came into Bangalore because that didn't work out. So God was just moving at that time concerning the nation of India. Yeah, it was still early when our churches were sending uh, missionaries there. Yes, 
I believe at the time there was probably, I think five churches, six churches maybe at the time. And Yeah, I, I can remember Pastor Campbell uh, hitting on India uh, almost every <laughs> service, man, calling people and every conference. And, and yes. guess what? Still, uh, he's yes. calling for 100 missionaries to India. Thank God yes. for people, pastors who have a vision, huh? Yes, thank God for that. So, uh, yeah, there's with with every missionary calling, there's a, a price to pay, obviously. But uh, but how did God move while you were there? Uh, when we got there, it was a lot of turmoil because um, that summer, you know, as I felt the the fellowship at the time was still very fresh. So we're still trying to f- find our way in India, uh, how to establish the fellowship. So you know, Dan Rubianis was uh, he would be like the the statesman, I guess, the older man. <laughs> he was only like 32 at the time, uh, yeah. but he had been there for five years. So he was still trying to figure it out. He helped me quite a bit, but uh, one of the things that helped right away is that he offered me an, an interpreter. So I took I took him up on his offer, and that really expedited the church right away. They speak English, but it, it's different when they can fully grasp what you're trying to say. So we we opened a church on the very southern part. No church had really been in that area. A lot of the churches were on I would say the north uh, northeastern side. So I felt God directed me before I ever got to Bangalore where to go, what part of the city to go. Uh, so we went there, and then I was asked over and over, "Are you sure?" Because that side, there's no there's no Christianity, there's no churches at all, there's no resemblance of any church at all there, and it's very difficult. Because at this time, I think the Rubianists had been through a number of riots. I believe two riots before they had uh, almost got arrested at one time. So when we first got there, that's when the the riot happened with the Heinbergs. We had only been there two weeks. They had done a healing crusade. It just didn't uh, turn out like we wanted it to. We were there supporting it, and then a riot broke out. Uh, you know, we had to leave the city. Certain things happened. You know, we had to flee the country. Some were these the, the radical Hindus. These are radical Hindus. Yeah. So what had happened is they got the flyer, uh, and they promoted it to all the radical Hindu party there. Uh, they're, they're called the RSS. So they they came, they acted like they were converts. They raised their hand like they're responding to salvation. But all these men were in place to to riot and to cause a ruckus. Uh, so probably about a hundred men came on the field where there was that healing crusade that night there, uh, where the Heinbergs were pastoring. You know, it was uh, somewhat traumatic. You know, no doubt we were kind of in shock. We weren't expecting it, so we had to flee get out of there. Thankfully, no one was hurt. The Heinbergs were able to flee, get out of there until things cooled down. We went up to Mumbai, us and the Rubianas, as we came back probably about three or four days later. So when we came back to that, you know, that was the atmosphere that we were trying to pioneer a church, like, welcome to India. Yeah, so really. We, we, we found a building, but we still had to lay low because these people now had us on their radar. And uh, we opened the church, but then right after that, uh, you know, a couple of bombs went off in the city. There was some some uh, terrorism that went off. I think seven or eight bombs rocked Bangalore. So that was going on as well. Some terrorism from the, the Muslims, the Muslim side. So you have that faction. And then not too long after that, that's when uh, Kay Henwood came under attack with the whole uh, Mumbai bombing where the terrorists tapped into his, uh, his, uh, his Wi-Fi, sent messages out. So they were able to track it to his IP address. And he had to go under interrogation. They begin to scrutinize who we are, our churches. They begin to locate where every church was at. So for a while, we couldn't outreach for like three months. There was no outreaching. We could even go to our building for like maybe two weeks. 
So if we had an interpreter, they would run the church for us. So all this is happening. And then in the midst of that, God was still helping us. It was supernatural. God was bringing people to the church by simply looking at the sign. We couldn't give out flyers. We couldn't evangelize. And then within about three or four months, we had about 35 people coming. I had my first revival wow. with my dad. He came in, did a re- meeting for me. And, you know, God was just helping us. And w- then within about a year, we were running about 50 people. And then by the time we left left Bangalore, we, we were running about 80 people. 80 people. We had launched a church out already. And then uh, the interpreter, that the, the guy that uh, uh, Dan Rubianis had released to me, I ended discipling him. He was a great guy. He was already a Christian. He had foundations in him already, and I'm thankful for that. But he, but as he began to work with me, he began to realize that I feel called. And then I began to work with him and his wife, disciple them, and then I indigenized the church, gave it to them, and they, they began to run with it. And what, what was his name? His name is Gopal. Gopal and Andrani. Very good couple. They're pastoring now. Uh, they're in, in the southern part of Bangalore right now. Praise God, man. That is amazing. Well, you got uh, you got some good experience under your belt in those years. Um, yes, really, really uh, make you uh, pause and wonder if this is really worth it with the bombs yes. going off. Yes, a lot of a uh, lot of pressure living there because for one, you know, just the traffic. You know, if you cause an accident, a lot of times you'll start a riot. So there's a lot of pressure living there, and I've learned I learned a lot about discipleship. Uh, it was like an accelerated pace. You know, through hardship, a lot of times we don't realize that God is really stretching us you know stretching is not very comfortable it's very painful so it felt like you know one month felt like a year to me so it's like you're in the midst of this all these things are going on each year there was a new trial there was another one that we went through i think in 2009 or 2010 where they made a new rule where if you have a tourist visa you cannot come back into the country once you leave it unless you stay out for three months so there was a time where my my family were out for three months in the u.s and i was there by myself and so there was always some new thing happening. It was, it was never, uh, you know, in a sense where everything would just settle. There was always something changing or always happening in India. That we, Around the corner, we were expecting a, a new hit or a new, new angle that would come at us. Yeah, got to stay flexible in yes. situations like that. Roll with the punches, as they say. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so uh, you were able to indigenize that church in India. And then what was the next chapter in your ministry? The next chapter is, you know, I was going through some health issues in my life. So that's one of the reasons why I indigenized it quickly. Uh, then I came back to assist my dad again here in the main church here in Guam for about four years. But during that time, I just struggled because I didn't understand why I, I would assist him again. Something I did before, um, you know, I was kind of not upset, but just a little frustrated. You know, why am I doing this again? Why am I assisting? Why am I back here? I should be out there. Because, you know, as a pastor's kid, one of the things I struggled with, and I felt I feel every pastor's kid that struggled with this as well, is that you're not you're not qualified enough or you don't have enough experience. I don't ever want just something to drop to me because of my name. So that's something I always dealt with. Like, I need to be out there on the cutting edge. I need to, uh, you know, somewhat build a name for myself. Not simply that I'm the son of Glenn Cluck, but I'm who I am because of what I've done. So that was something that always would kind of come to me. You know, you need to be out there. You need to be building a church. You need to be doing something for God. Uh, you know, of course, it's not pride. It's not, you know, ego. But it's just I just feel the need that I need to step out out of the shadow of my dad and be who I am. Yeah, I, I can see how that can put you into that. Uh, uh, what's it called? The, pr- the prison of performance. Like yes. I have to I have to be making my own way. Uh, but, yeah, that, that can be a trap. Yes. 
So I came back and assisted him for a while for, for about four years. But during the whole time, I knew I wanted to go somewhere else. So I, I prayed about different places. I thought about, um, you know, what, what I really felt is I want to go back to India because I felt I left in a way that I didn't want to leave. I left in the way, not, you know, not with my uh, tail between my legs, nothing like that. I left it indigenized. I knew I had to do that. You know, I was there to indigenize the church. I did did my part, but I always felt that I didn't leave in the correct way. I wanted to leave in a, a way that, you know, I, I walk out of this uh, feeling good. So I always had it in my heart that I wanted to go back to India. So I prayed about places. Delhi was always on my mind. And I just let that settle. So during those years, I was with my dad. I learned totally new things I never learned before, which was amazing. You know, the whole time I'm a little dissatisfied with what I'm doing. I'm learning things that I didn't learn before, more impartation from him. But now, when I look back now, I see why. I don't know he would leave this soon, this early, but he imparted a lot of his spirit into me. Uh, a lot of things that I picked up from him that I didn't learn from the first time. So I'm grateful for well, that. Yeah, you so were only there time, for a year the first time. Yeah. So for that period of time, you know, God began to speak to me about going back to India. So I'm still struggling with illness. I'm still struggling with sickness in my body. And one conference we went to in Prescott, I feel like I should do it, but I know I'm still struggling. So we couldn't go. So God spoke to us to uh, uh, empty out our bank account. You know, this is the first time I felt challenged, all our saving, savings that we had. So we, we said, we can't go, but we're going to do, we're going to empty out our savings, give it to God. So we did that. But what was amazing, a year later, uh, we were the ones on the stage to be sent out. We went back to India the second time. We went to, to Gurgaon, which is a, like a suburb of Delhi. So we went back a second time, and that was a new chapter in our life. But I felt like God was kind of challenging me, checking my heart to see where I was at, see if I was really into this, and I would really give myself once again to go back to India. So me and my wife prayed about it. We we wanted to go back to India, and God opened the doors, made made it happen. So we went to Delhi. Uh, we were there for two and a half years, but that's a whole other story now. We go there. You know, it's a different culture, and we feel like, okay, we have a handle in India. We've been there before, but now we're the northern part which is like a totally different country. They speak Hindi. They're not into English. They don't come to you like the South. Uh, they're very proud of their culture, very proud of Hindi. And uh, so we're trying to build a church thinking in the same way that we did in Bangalore, but it's a totally different scenario. Hmm. Wow. So yeah, you you <laughs> you come back to have a totally different experience in India. Yes. So uh, I, I want to ask you about that. And uh, obviously, I want to ask you about uh, your dad's passing and then the mantle being passed to you there in Guam. Uh, but sure. we're going to save the rest of that conversation for our premium block. And we're going to say goodbye to our free subscribers. If you have enjoyed this conversation so far, uh, we want to encourage you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button for just a few bucks a month. Uh, you will not only hear the rest of this conversation, but you'll get daily sermons uh, without any ads included. And um, yeah, if you need more uh, more reason, this is just one more. Uh, <laughs> so we thank you for being a free listener. Uh, thanks for coming along for the ride. Uh, and for the rest of you, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back.